are featured BBBYZ Giving Alliance accredited charity seal holders for this episode are Pure Water for the World, Road Scholar, The Ark of the United States. To find out more about these and other BBB Wise Giving Alliance accredited charity seal holders, go to give.org. You're listening to the Heart of Giving podcast with Art Taylor, powered by BBBgive.org. Here we explore the motivations that form the basis of giving and service. We inspire generosity and celebrate the transformative effects that giving and service have on the human spirit and on community. The conversations featured on the podcast also uncover giving strategies that educate and provide tools to help listeners make impactful gifts of both their time and money. We hope you enjoy this episode. Welcome to the Heart of Giving podcast, powered by BBBgive.org. Give.org is the nation's standards-based charity evaluator, and it's your one-stop source for information on giving and reports on the most asked-about charities. I'm Art Taylor, your host. As I've been doing these podcasts, I've come to realize that there are a myriad of ways of giving back to society. People are doing all sorts of things. And I have to tell you, the people who impress me the most are people who started something and stuck with it. Maybe not the same organization necessarily, but the cause. They got involved in something that was important to them. And they realized that while they could make some change in a short run, it was going to take a marathon before they could really see the kind of change that they wanted to see. And they were up for that challenge. The person we're going to talk to today is one of those people. She spent most of her professional career working to address challenges associated with our criminal justice system. And we've all heard stories, horror stories of how people have been abused really by our criminal justice system in various ways. And that's not to say that we don't need a criminal justice system. We certainly do. There are jails for a reason. There are prisons for a reason. There are police for a reason. And we certainly need them to do their jobs. And we have a system of criminal justice for a reason. But we also have a system of criminal justice that should work for people who are accused of crimes. Everyone, according to our system, should have a day in court to have their case adjudicated and for them to be made guilty or determined to be guilty if they are in fact guilty. When that happens, of course, there are penalties. But when that isn't the case or when there's something unfair going on that creates disparities about who ends up in jail or prison, then our system isn't working right and we need people like the person I'm talking to today that you're going to hear from to help us deal with that. And she's done this throughout her career. And I'm talking about none other than Robin Steinberg, who is the retiring chair, I should say, Robin, of the Bail Project. But she's done a lot of other things that we'll get into. Robin, welcome to the Heart of Giving podcast. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, Robin, you know, there's so much we could talk about. Your life, as I was mentioning, has spanned many decades now where you have injected your tenacity into righting wrongs and to defending people who did not get the kind of defense, who would not have had the kind of defense, but for you and for addressing problems systemically so that we could see the kind of change. But lately you've been working on the bail issue. Let's talk about the bail issue to some for for a bit. What do you see? What was it? What is it about bail that gives you 
such a concern that you feel that we need to change it? So I spent, as you said, you know, most of my career toiling in the criminal justice system, and most of that time was spent as a public defender. So I stood next to people in court day in and day out at their first appearance when judges were setting cash bail. And it's important, I think, for listeners to understand what cash bail was intended to be, right? So the theory was cash bail is an amount of money that a judge would set at the beginning of a case. It would give the accused some skin in the game, meaning if you put up your money and you make it back to court for all your court appearances, at the end of your case, no matter what the disposition is, that money will come back to you. And the theory was cash bail was what created an incentive for people to return to court. The problem is, is that as a public defender who's representing low-income people from marginalized communities, standing in courtrooms every day, what you realize was cash bail created a two-tier system of justice, one for people with money and one for people without. So people who had money charged with the exact same offense as somebody without money would be able to be free and fight their case while they were home with their family and maintain their jobs and be in their communities, while people who were low income and didn't have that cash would have to sit in a jail cell for as long as the case would take, which in most jurisdictions will take months at a minimum and sometimes up to years. So it creates a two-tier system of justice. It perpetuates and drives systemic racism. Uh, bail is more likely to be set if you are black or brown than if you're uh, your white counterpart. You're less likely to be able to pay that bail. Cash bail has been responsible for most of the jail growth in this country over the past 25 years. And it's been the driver of incarceration. And I know that because we have 3,000 local jails in this country. And in those 3,000 jails, the majority of people there are there because they can't pay their cash bail, not because they've been convicted of a crime. And cash bail gets set before the prosecution has been asked to bring any evidence to court, before you've had your story told, before you've had your defense brought into a courtroom, and you're supposed to be presumed innocent. So cash bail also erodes the presumption of innocence. It's unnecessary. It's unfair. And frankly, I think it's un-American. So, you know, well, the work we've been doing at the Bail Project has really worked over the past almost six years to show that cash bail is actually not what provides the incentive for people to come back to court. So we've been able to lay that myth to rest. How do we know that? For almost six years, we have been paying people's bails in 30 cities across America, almost 30,000 people at this point. And what we see is that clients come back to their court appearances over 90% of the time, even though they have no cash or skin in the game at all. So the idea that it was money that made people come back to court was a myth to begin with. So that's why when I said cash bail is unnecessary, it's not necessary to get people to come back to court. People will come back to court if they have court notifications that are effective and they have transportation to get there. It's that simple. So it's really time to eliminate cash bail in, in this country and really reimagine a pretrial justice system that's more fair and more equitable. So you're not saying then that some people shouldn't be held, right? Right. So what I'm saying is we need to take money out of the system, which I think most, this should be a bipartisan issue, right? Most people, right, would probably say, yeah, probably the size of your bank account shouldn't determine who stays in and who goes home. Really what needs to be created is a system where judges have the information they need to make determinations about when somebody can and can't be returned safely to a community. And that that ought to be a fair, transparent court proceeding where the accused is assigned counsel, where evidence has to be produced that somebody might actually pose a danger if they're released right? Not our imagination that they're dangerous because of the color of their skin, the way they dress, the language they speak, the country they come from, right? The neighborhood they live in. That's what drives a lot of uh, injustice in our system as it is. But some of, as objective as we can be, evidence in a courtroom that somebody might pose an imminent risk of danger. That can be determined by a judge with a prosecutor and a lawyer representing the accused. And then if it's found that they're an imminent risk of danger to somebody in the community, then a judge would have the power to hold them. But it has nothing to do with money, right? Money should just be taken out of the system. So what are some of the hurdles for making that happen? I mean, we have bail system and yeah. I would imagine people are... <laughs> making money off of that system. 
For and, sure. And uh, that's sure. that system is pretty ingrained into our way of uh, prosecuting cases and defending cases. So who stands to lose, I guess, is the question if we were to eliminate bail. So we have a multi-billion dollar bail bond industry in America. We are the only country that has such an industry. It's backed by insurance companies and it obviously employs and provides profit for all of those companies across the country. So they stand the most to lose. If we eliminated cash bail and removed it from the system and we imagined a different pretrial system without money determining that, they would go out of business tomorrow. So that's where the immediate loss comes in. And that's where we see very robust opposition to progress and opposition to change. But, you know, change is hard. We know that, right? So it's also culture, right? We, we have a decades-long ingrained culture in our courts of setting cash bail. So you'd have to shift people's ideas around that. We'd have to educate the public more about what cash bail really is and is not. It's become a proxy for dangerousness. So people think that judges set cash bail because that will protect the community. Cash bail has had nothing to do with public safety. The only thing cash bail does is hold people who don't have access to resources in jail cells, subjecting them, by the way, to harm and violence and all sorts of horrible things that happen to you in jail, in addition to what's happening to your life outside that's falling apart. So the other thing I think that is an important interest that the system has in maintaining cash bail is that cash bail is also the engine that keeps the system running. What do I mean by that? So the system is overloaded. There are too many people being brought into the system. Judges need to move their calendars. Prosecutors need to end their cases. Defenders have really high caseloads as well. Cash bail actually creates an incredible coercive lever for people to plead guilty. And here's how. If you can't pay your cash bail and you know you can't pay it, no matter what the amount was, whether it's $200 or $1,000 or $10,000, what winds up happening is prosecutors and judges will create plea bargains that will enable you to go home if you just plead guilty. So if you know you can't pay your cash bail, but you appear in court and the judge says, hey, you know, I know you can't pay your cash bail and I can get you a trial, but the trial is going to take a few months to get to. But if you want to plead guilty, I'll give you time served or we'll give you probation or we'll give you 15 days in jail, which is far less than the months and months it's going to take to get you to get your day in court to have a trial. Almost every single person when faced with that choice, and I would actually argue it's not really a choice, will plead guilty to go home because it's the only way to get to safety. It's the only way to get out of those jails. It is the only way to get back to your job and your family and your children and your home and your community. And so people will plead guilty to go home to safety. You know, I always say to people, if you put me in jail, I'd plead guilty to almost anything to go home. And so the idea that people don't plead guilty who aren't guilty is also a myth, but cash bail makes that dynamic continue and sort of greases the wheels of keeping the plea bargains going every day in every court in this country when people are pleading guilty to go home to safety. So it's not really a choice. It's a pragmatic decision. Yeah, and it's not really a plea bargain. Then. I mean, plea, plea bargains should be based on the severity of the crime you committed and the need for the courts to be administratively efficient and so forth. I was going to say, I can't count the number of times I've stood next to a client and advised them not to plead guilty because they weren't guilty or the prosecutor couldn't prove their case. And the client looking to me and say, but I can't pay my cash bail. And if this is the only way to go home, just let me plead guilty. The problem with that isn't just the unfairness of that, right? The problem with that is also people then get a criminal conviction Right. which is going to impose barriers and obstacles for the rest of their lives. It's perpetual punishment. And so that lever to make people plead guilty is one that also we hope would be removed if we could eliminate cash bail from our system. Well, there's the pressure obviously is on the prosecutors to move cases along and to get convictions. And it appears, Robin, based on what you're saying, that cash bail may be a tool and it's likely a tool to help them do that, right? To help them be more efficient. Even if the people they're getting convictions from didn't necessarily do the crime. I think that's right. I think, you know, cash bail is a powerful tool to make sure that those pleas of guilty keep 
upcoming. It's a tool that judges use to make sure that their calendars don't just get so overloaded, right? And I'm not saying that it's intentionally prosecutors would sit down and say, well, I'm going to put cash bail because that's going to make them plead guilty. Prosecutors believe they're prosecuting the right people, right? Mm -hmm. So for them, it's just, you know, a tool that advances the plea bargaining process quickly. And so it's a very powerful tool and a very powerful tool that creates more and more injustice every day. And we know that, right? You you can look around and anybody who reads any newspaper can see the number of exonerated people, right, who who have been finally freed from jails and prisons across the country when it's been proven that they pled guilty to something or were found guilty of something that they didn't do. And cash bail has a huge part in that. So you decided, for whatever reason that you wanted to do something about this. Who, I could ask the question this way. Who are you that you thought you would be able to, <laughs> to like change, put, put like a, a stick in the spokes of our criminal justice systems, bail, bail process. Who, who, I mean, who are you that think that you could do that? That's a really good question. I, I mean, look, it's it's me and it's my colleagues who have been fighting for more racial and social justice in our criminal justice system for as long as I've been doing this work. And yes, it was a little bit of an audacious idea. But, you know, when I started as a public defender in 1982 and I stepped foot into my first criminal courthouse in New York City and I saw what passed for justice in this country, I just vowed to make a difference and I vowed to try to change it. And I started that process by representing individual people, which I think was by far the most transformational, impactful thing I've ever done in my career was stand next to a person, get to know them, travel the journey with them and fight in a system that really was designed, right, to take away people's rights um, and keep them in jails. Um, And so for me, you know, that's how my career started, but inevitably, I guess I'm a person, when I look at it, I see the systemic flaws. And as much as I love representing individual people, I began to think that it would be important to take on some of the systemic flaws. And so I did that by creating a new public defender model uh, at the Bronx Defenders called Holistic Defense, where we really created a broader idea of what it means to defend somebody in a low-income community where various systems are coming after them and their families, not just the criminal justice system, but the family court system, the housing court system, the immigration system, and really began to recognize that even the arrest for a minor case can explode your life and that public defenders need to be addressing those issues as well if we're going to be impactful and relevant to our clients from in their shoes and their perspective, what they needed. So I did that. And then I thought, well, maybe the answer is to think about doing a place-based organizational thing in Oklahoma and start something around women's incarceration. And I did that. But all along, I kept looking at the systems and what are the systems that need to change, whether it's the public defender system, the prosecutorial system. But at the end of the day, when I thought about what's the last phase of my career I really want to engage in, I had a choice, right? I could try to become a judge and refuse to set cash bail. And I figured they would drag me into traffic court in about a day and a half and never let me survive as a criminal court judge. So that wasn't going to work. So any dreams I had of polyester robes, that went out the window. I was like, that's not going to last. But my husband and I had started something in the South Bronx in 2005 called the Bronx Freedom Fund. And it really was the first test of this proof of concept, which was, could we create a revolving bail fund with donated dollars And what would happen if we started paying some of our clients' bails? Would they come back to court? And so that was a very small proof of concept. And we had amazing results. 95% of clients came back to every court appearance. Half the cases got dismissed once we paid bail, which gets to that thing about the coercion of cash bail to get people to plead guilty. And it was so overwhelming that I thought this could be national. This could scale. This needs to be like elevated into the public conversation in a much broader way. And so I got incredibly lucky and maybe appropriately named the audacious project of the TED company, found the idea of the Bronx Freedom Fund to be one that they thought might have impact if we had the money to scale it. They put me into that process. Mm -hmm. I was lucky enough to be able to do a proposal with some of my colleagues that was presented to potential funders. And then they gave me the opportunity to do a TED Talk in April of 2018 about the injustice of cash bail in America. 
And that set everything in motion to allow us to take that small proof of concept and expand it nationally. So when you did, let me stop you for just for a you did this proof of concept. So you got together with some of your colleagues and you yep. said, you know, let's let's do something about beer. So then you immediately do you start a nonprofit? Did you just go to people and say, hey, can you put up some money to do some bail? What, how did that work? Give me more. Of the, give me give me the nuts and bolts of how you did this. Sure. So it was my husband, David's idea one night when we were both public defenders ranting and raving about the injustice of cash bail and one more client sitting in jail who pled guilty, whose case we thought we should win. He said, you know, what if we just started paying bail for people? And I was like, we can't do that. Lawyers can't pay bail for their clients. Um, And then we started to tease it out and thought, what would a revolving bail fund look like if we got donated dollars? That was 2005. So we created a 501c3 in 2005 called the Bronx Freedom Fund in New York. And then we tried to get a funder. And honest to goodness, I knocked on doors for two full years until somebody finally was willing to give us any money to do this experiment. And that person was Jason Flom, who was a record executive, who for whatever reason thought this crazy idea would be worth experimenting with. And so I had lunch with his dad, Joe, and him, and they gave us $100,000, which was an enormous amount of money at the time. It was way more than we ever imagined we'd be able to start with. And we began to pay people's bail, you know, slowly and carefully and track what was happening. And you, when you say you're paying bail, you're talking about 500000 mm-hmm. 5000 exactly. relatively small amounts of money is what we're talking about. For sure. Back then, I don't think we were paying bail over, you know, $2,500 for anybody. It was okay. more likely two fifty, five hundred, a thousand. dollars 1000 There's a funny thing about the culture of court, which is bail can be set in any amount. And you would imagine that if judges were considering somebody's financial resources, you would see bail in the amount of like $18 or $125. Mm-hmm. But because culture and systems are bigger than individuals, every judge we ever knew set bail in $500 increments. So bail was always $500, $1,000, $1,500, dollars That's significant when you think about the fact that the data is clear that most Americans don't have $400 in their savings account for an emergency. Got it. So it's really yep. out of the reach of most people. So, all right. So you, you got this hundred thousand dollars from this wonderful executive to to get this going and you now in the 501c3 starts making bail payments and what you discovered is that the money always got paid back and you probably didn't need any more than a hundred thousand dollars to make it work right i mean that's i mean did you ever like bounce out of a hundred well, you need more because there's more cases. There's guess, more cases. Too. Exactly. Yeah. There's more cases and you needed staff, right? You needed staff to right to interview clients, to go pay the bail, which by the way, back then when you to go pay bail in New York City, it can take up to six hours to get that bail paid before the person gets out. You then need wow. to wait with the person to make sure they have a way to get home because people are just let out any time of the day or night with no way to get home. Mm -hmm. And so it required staff as well. So we began to do more fundraising as the good results were coming in. People still thought it was a crazy idea. And initially people were like, you're going to lose all your money. But no, no, why did they think it was crazy? I mean, it makes all the sense in the world to me. Why do you think they think it was crazy though? So I think people bought into the myth that it was money that makes you come back to court. Okay. Which look, intuitively, it makes some sense, right? Like why would somebody come back to court to answer criminal charges if they they didn't have something on the line? The answer is because people tend to comply with court orders because it's in your best interest to come back. Because if you don't, they issue a warrant and the police can come pick you up any time of the day or night and bring you back. So people come back because they come back, right? But I understood that people thought, you know, and $500 isn't going to make them come or not come. I, I, I mean, if you weren't, right? I mean, if you weren't going to come back, $500 isn't going to be the thing that makes you come back. Exactly. So basically, all you're just saying is, let's find a way to give $500 away to somebody in case this person doesn't show up. Right. And the, and the, re- the revolving nature of our fund, to your point, allowed us to have the fund that kept revolving over and over again with a certain percentage of loss for those few people that would miss a court date, right? Right. But it was a really effective model. Mm -hmm. And then I got lucky and a lesson I learned a long time ago was when somebody sends you a random email and you don't know who they are, 
answer the email and find out who they are. <laughs> because I got this random email from a woman named Danielle, who I had no idea who she was. And she said, mm-hmm. hey, just came across this Bronx Freedom Fund thing. And I'm wondering if you could tell me more about it. And I was like, sure. She just said, I'm a researcher. I was like, great. And I began a months long conversation with her only to then realize when she finally revealed herself that she was working with a research team at the TED company. And it was part of this audacious project, which was then a confidential process. And they encouraged me to put a proposal in that was much bolder and much more audacious than the $100,000 grant. I think I asked yeah. for $55 million in that, in that grant. Wow. We got about half of that in the first round in the fall of wow. 2017. I got a phone call saying, we're going to give you about half of that so you can begin to hire staff and you can begin to scale and you'll continue to raise money. Wow. And so I left my job at the Bronx Defenders and I left my job at Still She Rises in Oklahoma and uh, dedicated myself fully to the bail project and scaling it and expanding it and trying to prove that cash bail should be eliminated. So what were you able to accomplish with the 22 or so million dollars, whatever it was that you got? Well, so we began, we hired staff across the country. We set up our first sites in Louisville, Kentucky, St. Louis, Missouri, and Tulsa, Oklahoma. We hired staff to get on the ground and begin to do the bailouts. We hired staff in our central, what we call our central support hub, which is really where we house our finance, our evaluation team, our advocacy team, now our legal team, our communications team. Our theory was if if it held, which it has, that the data showed that most people will come back to their court appearances, the overwhelming majority will come back to their court appearances, that what we needed also to do with to change hearts and minds was to also elevate the stories of people being impacted by cash bail, mm-hmm. um, elevate the data and the findings and the evidence, right, and get information out into the field about that, and then try to work with policymakers and local elected officials and prosecutors and other policymakers at the, at the local, state, or national level to really begin to try to move systemic long-term change forward. Mm-hmm. So while we were bailing people out, so we were sort of doing the direct work of addressing the humanitarian crisis, not nearly enough, but as much as we could, getting people home, but also using what we were learning to try to convince policymakers, right, that we could eliminate cash bail and the world wouldn't fall apart, and that actually our communities could thrive and be safer. Wouldn't it also be true that we're saving taxpayers money by not putting people in jails when they don't need to be in jails. Such a good point. So taxpayers in America spend about $14 billion with the B dollars annually holding people in jail cells who haven't been convicted of crimes who are just there because they can't pay their cash bail. $14 billion. $14 billion. And if you actually think about the collateral costs, it, it's well over $100 billion. But let's take even the conservative $14 billion. You know, I always say to people, you know, next time a jurisdiction or a small town or a city in America is contemplating moving from a five-day school week to a four-day school days week because they can't afford, right, to keep their schools open five days a week, we might want to consider how we're spending our taxpayer dollars, particularly when we know that, that that money is unnecessarily being paid. You could create a different system, take money out of it, and you could downsize the costs and enable us to use that money for more productive things and and healthy things that actually make communities thrive. Well, Robin, let me ask the hard question, though, because there's still going to be people out there who say there has to be some concern that the wrong people are out on the street as a result of this. They commit further crimes, they hurt people, they break steel property, whatever it is. And this wouldn't have happened if there was a bail system and if they were still in prison or in jail, excuse me. Now I've realized what you're going to say is, well, <laughs> most of them can get out anyway if someone pays the bail. Right. But so we're not really stopping anything, but what, what do you say to folk who are really concerned about people being out who shouldn't be out? Sure. So what I say is that if we created a system where that decision could be made by a judge and a prosecutor with a lawyer for the accused, based on evidence, you Mm -hmm. could still hold people in jail, right? Right. But you wouldn't use money as the thing that keeps them in, right? Okay. So I I believe in accountability. Um, mm-hmm. I think accountability is critically important, right? I think what accountability looks like has to be carefully 
thought about and drawn out into a system that actually is fair and just. But cash has never been the thing that actually protected anybody. People think cash is what makes us safe. It's, you know, if cash bail worked and mass incarceration worked, right, we'd be the safest country in the world. Yeah. Right. So clearly it's not working. Right. And there has to be a system that makes that determination about safety, about public safety that also considers the public safety of the person in jail, but also the safety of community members outside that you just need to create a system. And when I say just, I know it's not easy, but you can recreate a system where it's not money that holds somebody in but that a judge can actually just hold somebody in. So who's fighting you on this? Who? Why would anybody fight this or try to keep you from making this a universal elimination of bail? So, you know, people that are opposed to change on this, clearly the bail bond industry, some police unions, some prosecutors, some sheriffs, right, sort of join together to try to prevent progress from moving forward in this particular area. But time out. Why would why would police be opposed to a system where the judges have control over who stays in and who who doesn't? I think people have, look, I think it's really hard for people to imagine a different system, right? It's, I think what people imagine is that you're just opening up the jail doors and nobody's being held in jail pre-trial, right? right? Nobody's right. advocating for that. That's, that's not, right. that's not right. a model. It's not a system. Right. Yeah. Right. Right. But I'll tell you what happens is opponents to change use that narrative to scare people into opposing bail reform. Right. What they do is they take the narrative and which, by the way, is deeply rooted also in sort of fears about race, fears about power, yeah. loss of power, loss of status, fear yeah. of change. And they push that narrative out there to their outlets, their journalistic outlets that are willing to run these stories. And they basically say bail reform is going to make crime rise. There's absolutely no evidence that in the places where bail reform has taken place, that it that any uptick in crime is related to bail reform. There have been two studies now done about this, and it's very clear that you cannot create a causal relationship between those two things. So crime during COVID was ticking up all across the country. Bail reform only happened in very few places around the country. So we really would be smart to look at what were the other drivers, right, during COVID, during one of the most traumatic few years of our history in terms of destabilization and substance use and mental health challenges and services closing down and isolation, right? That might have more to do with what we saw than conversations about reforming cash bail, which, as I said, did not happen in most places. And so that causal link simply isn't there, but people continue to use it because if you scare people enough, right, people are really afraid of crime. If you scare people enough, you will stop progress in its tracks. And so we need to get better as consumers of information and as Americans in really sorting through what we're being told and really getting under the hood of, is that true? Is that not true? Is that just fear mongering? Is that just people who are opposed to change because they have a vested interest in keeping the system the way it is or because they're ill-informed? I would argue it's both, right? And so we need to get better at getting a handle on irrational fear. That's not to say that fear is not real. It's not to say that people shouldn't be afraid of crime. Crime is scary. Nobody wants to be hurt. Nobody wants their loved ones to be hurt. But it is the unusual occurrence And the data really bears out the fact that bail reform actually will make communities, I think, in the long run safer. Tell me one more thing. So here's I I got there's so many questions I got. But if I had a bail bonds company in here right now Mm -hmm. and I asked them, how do you make money off of this? Mm -hmm. What would they say? What would be the answer to that? They'd say, well, we're doing a public service. That's where they would start. (laughs) We're, We're doing a public service. And all we do as a company is we go to the family of loved ones and we ask them for 10% of whatever the bail amount was that the judge set. That's a fee that the family of loved ones who are desperate to get people out of jail, right, because their loved ones are being harmed in jail, they ask for a 10% fee. That fee is not returnable. That fee goes to the bail bondsman. So $500 bail will be $50. Correct. A $5,000 bail will be $500. Um, And families will do whatever they can, right, to get their loved ones out. So they will pay this fee to the bondsman who will then 
go to court and sign papers saying, if this person doesn't come back to court, I'll be on the hook for the money, right? And I, mm-hmm. and I will repay it. It is a little bit, it's a right. predatory lending scheme in some weird ways. It's predatory in its very nature. Uh, the other thing that's really interesting to see is that in many, many, many places, even if somebody doesn't come back to court, judges actually rarely hold the bail bonds company accountable for the balance of the money. Oh, so they never really have to pay it. Yeah. <laughs> so wow, I need to open a bail bonds company. Right. I mean, there's goodness a reason gracious. there's a lot of them around the country. Oh, my goodness. Wow. 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 Yeah. Or judges will give them lots of chances to get, you know, to go find the person and make sure that they come back to court. So the system is kind of created to enable the bail bond industry to continue and to thrive and to live off the backs of families desperate to get their loved ones out. You know, that said, without them, nobody would get out, right? And so right. The, the real issue is, again, how do we eliminate cash bail, thereby eliminating the bail bond industry, thereby creating a different system where people would be held in if they're going to pose a real imminent risk to somebody in the community, but that other people would then get out without having to put up money. I mean, all of these really small amounts, I, I shouldn't say small, because if you don't have it, it's a lot. But but five hundred dollars, a thousand dollars, people having to come up with a hundred dollars, fifty dollars that they know they're not going they're not gonna get that money back. The company just makes that time and time and time again. And they're never gonna have to pay the amount that's actually due if the person doesn't show up, which the person generally shows up anyway. Wow, it it's just a, a mind boggling setup here for you know, places to make money, it seems to me. I, I, mm-hmm. I don't know any other way to say it. Yeah. The other thing I wanted to ask you, if, if they were here, maybe I ought to get one of them in at some point just to see what the response would be. What would they say about the potential or, or why, why? what would they say to you, for instance, that would make sense about eliminating bail? What would they say as a counter argument to eliminating their existence? Oh, we're just going to like, you're going to cost our company, our company's going to go out of business. Or Is that all they got? I mean, what, what else would they say? Well, I certainly have seen uh, bail bonds companies go on local news stations and talk about how they're just a small family business and we're putting people out of business. Okay. All okay. Right. You know, to my answer to that is the business that you're in is unnecessary. It's unfair. It's unjust and it shouldn't exist. And you need to repurpose your life. Like, I don't mean to be cold about it, but sometimes you just have to repurpose what you're doing. Wow. I'm not going to give my address out to anybody because I don't want them coming after me, but. Well, sure. And look, if you have this. It, It does seem like a weird, a weird way to make money. I mean, listen, people make money all kinds of ways. For sure. And I'm not knocking anybody who figured out a way to make a living legally within our system. But it does seem to me that this is entirely unnecessary, what we're doing here. And yet there's not a whole lot of energy around changing. So so that's my next question. So where are we now with regard to a movement to change this? Mm-hmm. So I do think there's an awakening around our criminal justice system and the ways in which it is unfair and doesn't really reflect democratic values and in that way is un-American. I think that there have been some places that have moved bail reform forward with really good results, uh, New York City being one, where you can look at the decrease in the number of people being held on Rikers Island pre-trial, and there's absolutely no evidence that crime has crime that harms people has gone up at all as a result of that. So people have been able to go home and be afforded services if they need them and court effect, effective court reminders and people are coming back to court. So that's good progress. There's also Detroit entered into a voluntary settlement that actually reduced a very large percentage of people that were being held on misdemeanor cases on cash bail with no evidence that crime has gone up as a result. So you are beginning to see sometimes at the local level and sometimes at the statewide level, real change. Obviously, the, the statewide level in New York happened a couple of years ago. The local level was Detroit, but we have right in front of us now really what I think is the gold standard 
standard bill, which is the only place in America that has eliminated cash bail entirely. And that is Illinois. Wow. Um, and the state passed legislation last year that would have eliminated all cash bail and create that kind of system I'm talking about, where there is a hearing, it's transparent, it's in an open courtroom to determine if somebody poses an imminent risk to public safety, they're going to be held in. And Mm. if they are not, if they do not pose an imminent risk to public safety and that can't be proven, they'll be released. And there's all sorts of other really important things in that bill, including tracking the impacts Mm -hmm. on racial disparity of the new system. I mean, it's a very well thought out bill. Mm. That bill was about to take effect on January and two days before it was meant to take effect, a bunch of sheriffs and prosecutors got together and filed a lawsuit to prevent the bill from moving forward. Wow. So those of us in the field, we have a site in Chicago. We were really disappointed, but we waited for the Illinois Supreme Court, which eventually took the case up to determine whether or not the lawsuit had merit. I'm happy to report that just a couple weeks ago, the Illinois Supreme Court ruled that the Pretrial Fairness Act and specifically the elimination of cash bail was constitutional. And the bill is set to go forward in the next few months. So that will be a very interesting thing to watch and to track and to learn from as the first state in the union that has eliminated cash bail entirely. So it is a very exciting moment. And we at the Bail Project have been involved with a community-based organization called Lawndale Christian Legal Center in modeling for the jurisdiction what community release with support looks like. Um, And so we have been working with them in actually supporting thousands of people coming out pre-trial with effective court reminders, some housing, connecting them to services if they need services and transportation to and from court if they can't make it. So we're, we're excited about that. That is real progress. That is real progress. Well, but you're, you're about to retire if I'm not mistaken from the bail project itself, right? Yeah. So when I started this project at uh, the end of fall of 2017, I told the board that I would commit myself and dedicate myself to five years. And then after that, I was going to hand over the lanes of leadership to a new leadership team. And so I have held myself to that. I think, you know, it's hard. People hold on far too long, but I managed to do the work I wanted to do. I'm proud of what the Bail Project and all of our incredible staff have done over the past five and a half years. And as of September 1st, I will officially roll off as the CEO founder of the Bail Project. I will main, I will stay on its board because I believe deeply in this cause and I want to support the organization any way I can, but I will just be a board member at that point. Fantastic. And then what are you going to do? So I don't know. You know, I have promised myself that I was going to take a breath. You know, as you can tell from my career, I have frantically been working in this system, creating organization after organization and trying to really move change forward without a break. And so what I'm hoping to do is spend a little more time with my family, spend a little more time in the Redwoods, which I now love to do camping in California, and take a breath. I also am lucky enough that I wrote with my colleague, Camilo Ramirez, a book called The Courage of Compassion, which came out in April. So I have some speaking engagements related to that in the fall, and I'll be doing that more and more, which will be exciting. And we'll see. I'm going to take a breath and try to figure out what the next last chapter might look like. So you're you're really a justice warrior, if I could use that term in a in a fun way. Yeah, you know, I'm, I'd you, be honored to carry that label. Yeah, and I'm I'm pointing this out because to be that it's something that you have to have done not for a few weeks, not for a couple of months, not even for a year or two. To really see this kind of change come, to even position yourself to start a bail project like you did, took years of work doing related things, but waiting for the opportunity for something like this to unfold the way it did for you. And I do you think that there are people coming up in subsequent generations? that have this orientation? And if, if so, what's your advice to them? Hmm. Cause you know, I look at my, my life, I'm, I'll be 65 October 1st. And I feel like I'm on the, 
in the fourth quarter here, mm-hmm. part of my responsibility, I feel, is to is to begin staking people coming after me so that the work continues and that the passion for change and for people to work toward change continues. But this isn't something that happens overnight. You have to dedicate yourself to it. And I don't know if in my personal case, if I can say I started out with the idea that I would be doing this kind of work for 35, 40 years. But that's what's turned out. I mean, one day rolls into another. One project turns into something else. One success gives you inspiration to do more. And you find that you can't imagine your life being any different. What do you say, Robin, to young people coming along today who we need to take on some of this work? Mm -hmm. So I say to people, the paradigm of, are you just giving, giving, giving? I shift the paradigm to doing justice work gives you more than you ever give it. It is the most fulfilling, transformational, wonderful work that you do with incredible people that you meet along the way who also are dedicated to the principles and values that you hold dear. And so I always encourage people to do social or racial justice work because I I think it will be fulfilling and transformational for them. I also recognize it's not for everybody forever. That's okay too. I think people can do this work for as long as they feel passionately about it, as long as they're willing to put their all into it, they should do the work. But if that moment shifts, it's okay if you've done your part to move on to do something else. But I agree with you, there's always going to have to be a cadre of people that want to stay in this for the long term. And I try to remind particularly young people who, for all the right reasons, are impatient and want things to change overnight. And why isn't it changing quickly enough that they have to stay rooted in history, right? And that when it looks like there isn't change, there there has been change, right? When I look back and you look back, I'm sure, over our 40 years of our career, you can see the needle is moving forward, right? Yes, it has its pushbacks. Yes, it continually has its issues that arise, but all you can do is your part in moving justice forward. And that the work went on before us, the work will go on after us, That's how change happens and that it's never linear. It doesn't just move forward. It moves forward and then there's pushback and it moves forward and there's pushback. And so I tell people to remember to stay rooted in history. I'm not the first person to talk about bail reform. Robert Kennedy got up in a speech in 1963 and talked about the cash bail system as being unfair, right? Because it only harmed poor people. And so I'm carrying that mantle forward, right? And lots of other community groups and people that have been doing this work for a long time before me and will do it long after me. So I try to encourage young people to remember that it will give meaning to their lives, And that's really, I think, the thing that should motivate them. And as long as they stay motivated and believe in it, they should work in it as long as they can. But to also recognize that patience and humility are important and that systems are really hard to change and they don't go down without a fight. But you have to keep fighting because eventually they will change. Well, this has been great, Robin. And you've been listening to an American lawyer, a social justice advocate, a nonprofit organization founder and leader, a legal educator, and someone, frankly, who just gives a damn about what happens to people who who get caught up wrongfully in our criminal justice system. I really proud to say that I was able to capture your story on the podcast today, on the Heart of Giving podcast, because you are an example of the kind of individual that can inspire others to get out there and do what they can do to make change. Just following your life, following your passion, following your grit and your determination is what leads to change. No one could have imagined that you would have made the kind of progress you made when you started this out. But here you are. And so to all of those listening, to all of you who are sitting on the fence thinking about what can happen, or maybe you're sitting there thinking, we can't do anything about this, or maybe you're just one of the people who likes to complain about things not being right, get in, do something, 
Try it out. You never know where it's going to end with the kind of determination and fight and tenacity that if you put into it, you might get something really meaningful out of it. So I just wanted to just hold you up and thank you for for what you've done over your lifetime. And whatever you do next, we'll be paying attention to it because I know it'll be it'll be great and it'll be meaningful to to so many people who who have been caught up in something that they can't themselves get out of and caught up in something that's unjust. So just thank you. Well, thank you for all those incredibly generous words. And it's been an honor to be on the podcast and to get to know you and to talk about these issues that I know we share um, the importance of justice and people getting involved in fighting for more justice and more equity and equality in this country. So I'll look forward to seeing what you do next in in the last quarter. And hopefully we'll, we'll stay in touch. And thank you for having me on the podcast. I really appreciate it. And onwards to all of you out there, get involved, join the fight. It's worth it. Well, you've been listening to the Heart of Giving podcast. And if this is the first time that you've listened to an episode, you got a great one. But believe me, there are at least 100 more of these shows. We do them every week. And if you would subscribe to the show, and you can do that on any podcast platform, you'll be pinged when a new episode comes up. And they're all amazing because it's kind of people we have on telling their story about how they made change or they're making change in our society. And if you want to support the podcast, that would be great, too. Uh, You can make a gift by going to our website at givegive.org. And you can make a gift to the Wise Giving Alliance, the BBB Wise Giving Alliance. And I guarantee you we'll put that money to great use. Thank you for listening. We'll see you back here next week. You've just listened to the Heart of Giving podcast with Art Taylor. Be sure to tune in next time for a brand new episode. To listen to our other interviews, visit heartgiving.podbean.com. That's heartgiving.podbean.com. Subscribe to our show on major podcast platforms. The thoughts and opinions expressed on this podcast are the views and opinions of the guests, not those of the BBB Wise Giving Alliance or program affiliates. This podcast is for information and educational purposes only and is copyrighted with all rights reserved. This podcast is protected by Podbean's Terms of Service.